Welcome to Let's Evaluate It. In this podcast, you'll hear from students at Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana, taking a course all about public health programs and evaluation. Highlighting some of the biggest issues in public health today, we're going to bring in some of the coolest people we know to talk about some of the coolest things they know. 15 students, one pandemic, and six feet apart. We're ready to learn something new. We hope you are too. So let's evaluate it. Hello everyone and welcome to our podcast, Let's Evaluate It. We're going to start off with a fun fact about evaluation. Failures in evaluation are important. Sometimes you will need to go with plan B, plan C, or even plan D, whichever is going to get you your best results. You have to learn from your mistakes. Evaluation can be driven by desire to show that a project was successful. Understanding and sharing what doesn't work is just as important as what does work. For example, An evaluation of a health, education, and water program in Mali revealed that a failure to establish terms of agreement led to divisions and miscommunication affecting the program's implementation. Results improved after the organization, community leaders, and church representatives developed a memorandum of understanding. So sometimes your failures are going to be just as helpful as your successes. In related news of racism and health, an article called Tackling Racism and Health Takes More Than Data Alone, Says Experts, by Kat Jurgich, discusses the structural racism present in healthcare and future steps we can take to tackle the issue using technology. The article states that the COVID-19 crisis has magnified and exacerbated inequalities in healthcare, with communities of color disproportionately affected by the disease and its economic fallout. But the disparities date back to long before the pandemic began. Structural racism has been and still is an issue we face today, and it permeates the healthcare system in the United States. With this reality, the article attempts to answer this key question. How do we combat bias that's decades old in our country as we move forward today? Suggestions in this article highlight that technology can serve to be an equalizer if it is used in the right way. For instance, AI, otherwise known as artificial intelligence, could be used to alert doctors that some patients may be at higher risk for certain diagnosis due to social social determinants of health. Another key question is, how do we train a new group of leaders in asking critical questions about addressing racism in healthcare? Many find it difficult to engage and address the presence of racism in healthcare because they do not know the root causes of the problems, and therefore a call to action to learn more about these deep-rooted issues can serve to improve the current system. Racism is a cultural and structural issue, and the article emphasizes that real change starts at the top, with leadership members who recognize the problem head-on and commit to creating real change. To learn more about this, you can head to healthcareitnews.com. Any 
Anita Kreider from Purdue University's Black Cultural Center, who will be talking with us about racism and health. Um, Juanita, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and why you are so passionate in this area? Excuse me, yes. Um, I am um, what they would call a non-traditional or post-traditional student. My primary role here at Purdue is a full-time employee at the Black Cultural Center, but I'm also a doctoral candidate in American Studies. Um, my background, uh, academic background, I have a degree in history from Ball State, um, focusing on African-American history in the 20th century, and also um, my master's degree is from Purdue in American Studies. And most of my research, my dissertation is going to be about post-menopausal black women and how they're represented in film, literature, and television, and social media. But I became very interested in the the conversation of the topic of health disparities. Um, I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland. And growing up in the east of Baltimore, um, if you don't think about Baltimore, Johns Hopkins Hospital is a very prevalent um, factor in the community there. And all growing up, I've always heard um, rumors about it's a very tense relationship between that hospital and the black community. Um, and it is because there have been accusations of the hospital being located in a primary black community, the growth of the hospital having actually caused a destruction of some of those black communities as far as housing and causing, forcing people to move, but also using some of the perhaps um, indigent and very vulnerable black population for some of their medical experiments without full knowledge of the, without community having full knowledge. And you would hear these rumors, but you would not really know, well, is this true? Is this not true? And then I'm, I'm imagining you guys being in public health, you are very familiar with the recent um, story of Henrietta Lacks and um, how she was a patient at, um, at the hospital there and how the HeLa cells that have been used for so much in medical science were actually grown from her cancer cells and no one, she was never told this, no one in her family ever knew and they died, uh, she died and her family were very indigent, very poor and here are these companies making money, tons of money and these very important um, groundbreaking things happening in medical science that are a direct result of the availability of the HeLa cells. And it's just this vulnerability of blacks and also a class issue, poor whites um, being being misused, uh, their bodies being used, used for medical science. And you also have the, um, by being a historian, you also have the uh, story of um, Marion Sims and his gynecological experiments on former enslaved Africans um, and the damage that it, do, it did to those women's, women. So those kinds of things uh, have kind of always piqued my interest in um, the racial disparities, but, that, but not just that, more so reasons why a lot of African Americans have a hesitancy to trust the medical community. That's the aspect that I'm probably more interested in um, than anything. And how, yeah. we can, how we can rectify that. That is really important, especially because um, just with the recent pandemic, 
and vaccine clinical uh, clinical trials are coming up and stuff. And so they need a lot of different people from different uh, race backgrounds and stuff and biological backgrounds to come in mm-hmm. for the trials. So this is so relevant. Um, how do you, you use your research to bring attention to current and historical context regarding race and health? Um, I, you know, okay, I pulled up when I was in my master's program, I did a paper and I pulled up the paper just for this uh, interview and it's called, um, a title of the paper is Invasion of the Body Snatchers and it's about the myths and legends and truths of medical science in the black community. And um, interestingly enough, when I was doing this project, my professor really didn't know a lot about it. So he was, so I guess I, I tried to, if, if when I was still taking classes, I'm done with coursework now, I tried to do a project on a topic that I think sheds light that's kind of related to this. And this particular paper um, talks about how black bodies were robbed from the graves in order to have uh, cadavers because historically um, cadavers weren't always used for medical science. And then the French became um, renowned for using cadavers in uh, medical science. And so America did not want to be behind. And so they wanted to use cadavers too for their medical students. And, and of course they did not have enough cadavers. And so they were actually had people they call resurrectionists or grave robbers. And they would go to the cemeteries because cemeteries were segregated. Uh, and they would actually go to black cemeteries and uh, steal bodies from graves in order to, and medical schools would pay these people, resurrectionists to actually go, professionals to go and steal the bodies so they could have enough cadavers. Wow. Yeah, I know. That's, what can you say? But, but wow. To, uh, That's like insane. That. And there was a famous, actually, there's a famous case in Indianapolis where like six people, and I think it was in like 1910, um, where they ended made the news and uh, like six people were actually ended up uh, being arrested and going to jail. Um, and it caused Indiana to actually make some rules about, um, you know, the the state, I'm going to read this right here. Due to the high publicity of this case across the state and country, the Indiana State Legislature drafted legislation creating the state anatomical board that was empowered to receive and distribute unclaimed bodies from the state, throughout the state, to medical schools. So it actually was a, the, the problem caused a change in the actual laws here in the state of Indiana. That is insane. Thank you for bringing light onto that, um, especially for something um so crazy as that like grave robbing and stuff um for that so, so, but, think, so, think, so think about that think about you know you hear and then i can't I'm only, only begin to tell you what they did to the bodies um to get them out of the burial site it, it caused damage to the bodies mm-hmm. um and you know imagine having, um, in most segregated cemeteries, black cemeteries are populated to a church. Um, so imagine going 
to your church's cemetery and seeing whether it had been disturbed. You know, you, I can't imagine, I can I understand why people were very hesitant about medical science or being, receiving, uh, trusting doctors because of things like this. Right. And then you also have the history of what they call the Mississippi appendectomies. I don't know if you've heard. And that was basically where they would, um, black women would go, be told they were getting an appendectomy. Poor indigent black women, what they actually were doing was sterilizing them against their will and giving, uh, giving them hysterectomies. And what I do now, I look, I work uh, menopause, um, right? And I'm looking at how menopause. Uh, menopausal black women are represented I'm really interested in how I'm not doing a whole lot of comparison but I'm gathering their stories because I, I'm interested in how black women um, navigate menopause with their medical doctors with their um, just within their community how they share their cha- triumphs challenges uh, related to that phase of their life um, and I do a lot of work with aging, so I'm really interested in see how race and age intersect. And, of course, that that automatically leads me to be interested in how um, certain physical illnesses or just certain physical conditions related to aging um, and how there may be differences in treatment as it regards to race. Um, ultimately, the trust that we need to have with our community is so vital. And so that is such a great component to your research. Um, what are some specific facilitators and barriers to your research on African-American women and health, would you say? Well, one of the main barriers, um, especially talking about menopause, is so I'm dealing with a generation of women, many of them, they're not taught to publicly t- talk about these kinds of things. So a lot of them don't even really want to, t- if I'm talking to actual women and doing actual interviews, many of them may not actually want to talk about intimate things like menopause. Um, I'm also very interested in an elder or senior sexuality. And so many of them are not comfortable talking about <laughs> those kinds of things uh, either. Um and then one of the barriers is that not many people are not very many people are looking at black women um when alone on this subject. So it's not a lot out there written, which I guess for my I guess that's a good thing. So when my stuff gets done, maybe somebody will be interested in it and I'll be one of the few people writing about black women in menopause and um how they navigate it and how it's represented and how representations well the whole thing is that when you see something represented even in popular culture and literature film media it it informs the public that is actually going through it it's like they feel they're not alone it's like i see myself and that's important and, that, and seeing themselves and seeing these fictional characteristics or conversations may encourage them to actually go and be more comfortable talking about it so that that's the, the I get the main specific uh, barriers, but I'm finding little lights in the darkness. Um, I found a podcast called The Black Girl's Guide to uh, to Menopause, and it's been very helpful. I actually but, have heard of that. Yeah, um, it, it's so funny because these days um, I think a lot of programs are structured around the idea of being becoming more comfortable about talking about sexuality and um 
feminine products and stuff mm-hmm. and just menstruation in general and everything. And I think it's a good progress, especially because we are um, moving forward and like talking more about this. I'll give you a, a, a kind of funny, very pop culture moment example. Mm-hmm. Um you know that uh, Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion have this song called WAP. Yes. Okay. And I don't have, I don't, I'll, leave, I'll leave it up to you to say, for you all, what to say WAP stands for. I'm not comfortable saying it. I don't know if you know like that on your podcast. But, uh, <laughs> and interestingly enough, I got excited because on Twitter, in my Twitter feed, some women began to talk about, uh, talk, you know, there was complaints about how vulgar it is and everything. But then right. there was there was a woman or two that said, well, you know, they better enjoy the wetness while they can because one of the uh, classic symptoms of menopause is that you experience vaginal dryness. And then, you know, they were saying, oh, wow, I didn't know that. So I got excited because I thought it was a wonderful moment for an intergenerational conversation to kind of let, that, I'm not, not saying that every woman that's in menopause has this, but it's a very common symptom. So I, I got excited to see that, wow, this is a good time of intergenerational sharing of information related to, um, you know. Uh, the biology of our body. Right, right. Related, because you, women don't know. Yeah, and right. And, you know, gynecologists treat this. They actually, if you go to them, your gynecologist and tell them this is a problem that you're having, they have treatment for this, you know, when you're. Right. Married. It was a wonderful, it, 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 I thought it was a great uh, <laughs> thing going on to have that uh, intergenerational um, conversation. And it, it really, it would begin a conversation about, other people sharing and and other people that hadn't been apologized. Really, I didn't know that. How come nobody told me that? How about how come nobody told me that this is something that can happen to you and this is a feeling you could have? And so I got really excited to observe <laughs> that and also to have that data for my dissertation. <laughs> yes, using Cardi B as a as a data for. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, that's actually funny. Um, could you highlight some areas where intervention and evaluation regarding race and health are needed? I think um, intervention would probably be as students are studying, like at the level you're studying, nursing, medical mm-hmm. school, um, even social workers who specialize in health, I think cultural competencies um throughout every stage of your education would be very, very helpful. Um, I'll give you a classic example. My grandmother was, uh, she's deceased now, but I remember her being um, ill and, you know, she was at, she wasn't in the hospice, but they knew that she, chances were she wasn't going to make it. And um, the doctors telling my mother and I that um, he was going to send a psychiatrist in. And and we said, why? He said, they thought she was depressed. And I said, why do you feel she's depressed? And they felt, because she kept on saying, um, I made my call in an election show. I'm ready. I've lived long enough. I'm ready to see the Lord. And I, I said, no, she's not depressed. She's letting you know that she's she has made peace. You know, when she says she's ready, that means that, you know, she's this, her faith system is act is acting in her. She's right. talk, she's expressing her faith system that she believes that it, when her time comes, that she's going to be with the Lord. And it's gonna, so she's not really depressed. Matter of fact, this is giving her strength. She's relying on this to help her get through this very difficult time. Right. Um, and I felt like the person, the doctor or the nurse didn't really have the cultural competence to under, to translate the language culturally to understand what 
got him. I, we didn't feel like she needed a psychiatrist. We didn't, you know, they sent him in anyway. But uh, we explained to him that, no, she's not depressed. She's just, she's reckoning with the, her present situation. She's, you know. I think it's, um, especially with this time, um, and as our field of public health revolutionizes and progresses, I think that cultural competency is one of the key things that we can use as a tool to improve healthcare in general. And I think that's one of the key factors. So um, thank you for sharing that. No, I was thinking about evaluating, another part of it was uh, evaluation too. Um, I think also this whole, I think there needs to be more clarity about are there different ways in which certain diseases manifest themselves in different ways um, across ethnicities? I, I would like to see more evaluation uh, about that myself. That's interesting you say that because um, as a Korean-American woman, there are certain biological components where our bodies react differently to let's say someone of the Caucasian race or mm-hmm. um, African-American, you know, and it's, it's, I think it's a area that does need more evaluation. Implications as far as, you know, uh, racial differences. Are we not different? You know, race is a construct. I, I know it's complicated, but I don't think we should let that complication. I don't think it should get in the way of actually evaluating right. and seeing what the science right. tells us. Yes, I completely agree. Um, I'm going to pass it over to Shelby. Um, she's going to be asking you some questions. Okay, thank you. All right, so the next question that we have for you is, if all the barriers and constraints were removed, what is an area within your research you would want to address through programming and why? I'm very concerned about um, the maternal death rate and the problem with black women and um pregnancy versus other races. It seems like there's a, a problem there that, um, and it seems to be just from the different re- articles and news things that I've read that they're not taking, some medical professionals are not taking the black women seriously when they share these symptoms. So I wish there was something that could be done with that. And then also research on, it's shocking to me how many uh, people report that doctors feel that many doctors, not all, or some doctors, maybe it's more fair, actually still believe uh, or believe that people have different pain thresholds according to their race or ethnicity. That is, I would like to see that removed totally. <laughs> and I would be interested in, uh, pro- and I wish pro- with more programming people would share their stories of being treated that way because I don't think um, I don't think people would like many people would believe that these kinds of things are still going on in the medical profession or these kinds of attitudes or beliefs are still out there among medical professionals yeah so um, kind of going off of that what do you think are some potential constraints when evaluating programs in relation to racism and health some of the constraints uh, back go back to what I was talking about in the beginning, the actual history, the uh, actual abuses, 
uh, that the communities have experienced at the hands of the medical profession. That's a constraint. Mm -hmm. um, another constraint is um, access. You know, many people don't have insurance, whatever. So a lot of times they put off uh, seeking medical attention to something that perhaps if they sought medical attention earlier, it could be a manageable illness, you know, a chronic disease or illness. These things are interconnected, like food deserts. You know, it's just like if people don't have access to good food or the best food is the most expensive food, then, then they eat perhaps things that are not best for them, and then it causes uh, medical problems. And then also the cost of pharmaceuticals, the cost of medicine to treat. I mean, I get upset. I'm not a diabetic, but I get heartbroken whenever I hear about somebody having to ration their insulin, you know, because they don't have enough money to pay for the amount of insulin that they need. And usually it's brown and black people or, you know, other people of color that seem to be overwhelmingly affected by these kinds of crises. I'd like to see some research into how the stressors of racism manifest themselves physically. Mm -hmm. Living, uh, you know, with these kinds of stressors, I imagine that it's a physical man. I mean, I know I have hypertension, and I know that if I encounter a situation, uh, it it will raise my blood pressure. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's super interesting that you're talking about how all of these things are interconnected, and that you brought up, you know, food deserts. That's in my internship this summer. That's one of the things that I was looking at within the data, and it's just it's interesting how you know. A food desert can affect your accessibility to food, but the community that you live in, the livability of that community may also impact um, your health and well-being. And so I think this interconnectedness is something that it impacts everything. What would be some potential advantages of evaluating programs in relation to racism and health? Well, the goal would be to reduce the discrepancies to erase them would be, you know, wonderful. And I don't know if that's too, too pie in the sky, utopia uh, point of view, but why not? You know, I think an advantage too is to start younger. I worked before I came to Purdue, I worked at a not-for-profit and we had students um, do gardening. And I'll never forget working with some seven or eight-year-olds who had and got excited the first time they were seven and eight. It was the first time they ever tasted a fresh cherry. It, I got excited, but it also made me sad. I think that if you introduce healthy alternatives for everything, you know, exercise, eating, the, the more you can introduce it at a younger age, I think that we will see the outcomes later that we want to see in our communities. So evaluating programs could also help us know where funding needs to go. You know, like, for instance, some, this COVID, it, when they get a vaccine, does it make sense for the most vulnerable populations to get the vac access to the vaccine first? Should our elders and the black, indigenous, brown people get access to the vaccine? And, of course, healthcare workers, because they're on the front lines. But you know, and how, do, how do we make that happen? How do we make that happen in the most fair and equitable way possible? Yeah, for sure. So then what do you think are some key factors into creating a successful program that can ultimately sustain change? Funding, funding, funding. <laughs> 
and for people to see people that look like them. I've had healthcare uh, doctors, nurses, et cetera, et cetera, all different kinds of races, but um, many people feel more comfortable when they see a medical professional, even if it's just a nurse, not even that the doctor, but the doctor's nurse is uh, looks like them. Just being able to identify, okay, this person, this I see somebody who looks like me. Maybe they understand and identify with identify with me. Um, I also think uh, talking to young kids about the very many different aspects of the medical profession. Uh, you know, we always think about doctors, nurses, physicians, assistants, but encouraging people who study in public health at the college level to think about how they can affect policy, getting jobs in uh, NGOs and in, and in the government, being working in civil service, so you can actually be there to affect policy, I think, uh, is a key factor. And uh, I've been able to do 15 years, and when um, I think it was H1N1 first came around, I mean, Purdue evaluated itself, and Ned, Ned Purdue had a a pandemic plan. They didn't have a COVID plan, but they had a plan for a pandemic. Um, and then they were able to even transition from that plan to, to apply some of those things to COVID. So keeping track of what we're learning from this experience will also help us evaluate programs. One thing I was concerned about here at Purdue, to be honest with you, with COVID is given the choice. You want to come to campus or do you want to do stay home and do hybrid? Was the university understanding that students of color may make the choice to stay home more than white students because of of the vulnerability in the communities of color, and maybe they had a you know loved one at home that they wanted to stay home and help, or didn't want to come to campus and bring something back. So those kinds of things, hoping that the university uh, administration and officials would prepare to see that disparity and understand that that perhaps is why. I'm going to pass it off to Annabelle, and she's going to ask you the remaining questions. Thank you. Alrighty, so our next question, um, we're going to continue talking about programs. Do you know of any effective programs that target the issue of racism in health? And if so, how is the program being implemented, and how well does it work? Oh, there is a program called... Girls Trek, and it was a program to help them walk, encouraging them to, to walk. It's a program based off of these famous black women, um, abolitionists, and how they traveled from um, help escape people from the south to the north. And then they were using that program as a way of highlighting the activities of these black abolitionist women and using that as a way to encourage black women to get out and walk you know, in their own communities. There's also uh, programs in uh, barbershops in many black communities where they try to, they have people go in and talk to um, the black men about prostate cancer mm -hmm. and getting exams for prostate cancer because of high um, rates among black men. And that has had um, some success in many urban locations. Also, there's a program that communities have what they call minority health coalitions and through their public uh, health offices. And a lot of the minority health coalitions during the month of October, they send women into traditionally black churches to talk about, share their breast cancer survival stories to encourage women to get their mammograms. So those are three uh, programs that I know of that uh, are kind of national and work very well 
um, in those particular communities. That's amazing. I love how those, the barbershop one and the church one, they're using places that they would already be going to encourage Mm -hmm. them. So you're not feeling how, like you said, they don't really feel like recognized by doctors and um, nurses sometimes. So they're using their own community to outreach to, you know, get your mammogram. That's incredible. I haven't heard of those. We'll have to dig a little deeper. And it's also one the beauty, the black beauty shops too. Um, also yeah. The, the barbers and the, the females. Black beauty shops. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think program evaluation in the area of racism and health can aid in dissolving racial disparities? And what do you think are effective tools to measure this outcome? That is a very excellent question because um, a lot of my dissertation, I ground my uh, methodology and theory in black feminist thought. And one of the big um, issues or big uh, emphasis is that when you do program evaluation, that you have to have your participants involved in the evaluation of the program. Because sometimes it's just mm-hmm. the people who started the program and their peers and colleagues and supervisors. But it's important to, as you are getting to know whatever community um, that you're working with, to ask them questions about what would this program, what would success in this program look like to you? And that's a way of involving them in the evaluation process and you're asking them those types of questions about how you form your final evaluation to, uh, metrics or tools that you will use. So it's, I think it's one of the most effective ways is to involve the community that you actually try to serve and build trust too. That builds trust in that, and that back to that whole thing of, wow, they even asked us what we think success looks like. They must have really invested in us and very interested in what we feel. So for our final question of the day, if you had the power to change the outcome of one racial health disparity, what would you choose and how much of an impact would it have? Woo. Wow. <laughs> my magic wand out. I'm in charge. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would probably be the prevalence, the high rate of, hypertension and diabetes in um, the black community. Those two seem to be very, very, very prevalent. And, um, you know, they're chronic illnesses, but they are manageable. And there are ways to treat it that, depending on where you are in that stage of the illness, there are ways that you can treat it that aren't very expensive. It's the, you know, diet, exercise, and things of that nature. So that would be without a change disparity. And then, of course, the access is disparity. If people could have better insurance. This whole, I haven't decided where I land on the far, you know, some people say, well, it should be Medicaid for all, and we should have public, you know, national public insurance. I haven't really given that much thought. I just know I want people to have better coverage. I haven't gotten down to the nitty-gritties of what that better coverage would look like. But I just know that people need better coverage. That would even affect work productivity because people mm-hmm. would be missing less time off. And I mean, it would have effect, like a positive effect. effects across our economy and across the many aspects of our country. Yes, it wouldn't even, yeah, you're correct. It wouldn't even only approve their health, but mm-hmm. the um, economy, their own personal income. That's kind of what Shelby was saying earlier. Everything intersects, which is why public health is so broad and you can do so many things. And so we could go on and on talking about this, of course, (laughs) but we don't want to take up too much of your time. So 
That concludes our podcast. So we want to thank Juanita for taking the time to be interviewed for this podcast and sharing with us her knowledge surrounding the topic of racism, health, and program evaluation. If you want to learn more about Juanita or her work, you can visit the Purdue University Black Cultural Center website, which we have included within our show notes. Um, We challenge each of you to look for ways that you can further your knowledge on the impact of racism um, and health. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Juanita. You're welcome. Bye-bye.